My name is Cassidy Corcoran, and my husband Don and I have been at Emmanuel for just over three years now. Um, I was raised in the church, and I had amazing godly parents, but in my early 20s, I decided to uh, run away from God and try and live life on my own. I always knew what was right, but I was never wanting really to sacrifice my own desires. I was afraid that following God's will for my life might cause me to have to sacrifice something. And it was in 2007 that I reconciled my life with God. And since that time, one of the biggest things that uh, he has taught me, that he continues to teach me, is really just to rest in his promise. Uh, his promise that he is my rock and my deliverer, that he will never leave me nor forsake me. Um, the promise that it is his joy that is my strength. And I really think that's something that he continues to teach me is to rest in his peace because God's promise is not that life is always going to be easy and that things will always work out. It's that he'll always be there with you through everything. And sometimes obedience to God will cost you everything. And my husband and I experienced that very early on in our marriage. Uh, we were at a point where we lost all that we had following God's call on our life. And yet even in the darkest times, God continues to hold me and to remind me that I can rest in the promise that He will always be with me. He is constantly directing me back to Him, to rest in Him and to find my joy in Him. And uh, she's just one of many in our church family who are hearing the call of God and trying to be obedient to God. And you got to hear a little bit of her journey. And I, that resonated with you. I, that's why we're doing this right now is we want you to hear someone from our own congregation. And then each Sunday, we also turn our attention to someone on the pages of Scripture. The uh, first week, we looked at Joseph and his life and the Joseph Principles. And then the second week, we looked at Moses and his life. And then last week, we looked at Joshua. And this morning, I want to turn your attention to Samuel. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, while you're turning there, let me give you a sense of what's really going on in the process. Uh, Genesis is, really ends, and it's all about Joseph. But Exodus begins with the story of Moses. And the story of Moses is the story of the Israelites who are in Egypt and then are enslaved in Egypt. And they would spend 400 years there before their deliverance. But their deliverer would be Moses, and he would come back to deliver them out of Egypt, but he would not get them into the promised land. That was given to Joshua to accomplish. And Joshua would become really the, the one, his name means deliverer. He's the one who would move them out of their wilderness experience into what God had always expected for them. And, uh, and so that's the story of Joshua. Now, between Joshua and Samuel is the book of Judges. And it's a time when Israel was really kind of lost. They would sin against God. They would get into trouble. They would be in trouble nationally. Often another nation would rule over them. And then they would turn their hearts back to God. And God would send them a judge or a deliverer, a military man, to give them strength to overcome those that were oppressing them. And it would happen over and over 
and over and over again. And just to give you a point of contrast and comparison, the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua the leader says, uh, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all the people said, that's what we're going to do too. The last phrase in the book of Judges is, every man did what was right in his own eyes. They come to a place where God's morality didn't really mean anything to them. Each person chose their own morality. I, I would decide what's right and wrong for me, and you would decide what's right and wrong for you, and I wasn't really allowed to tell you that you were wrong, and you weren't really allowed to tell me that I'm wrong. Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And if ever a phrase in all the Bible describes modern America, that one describes us now. Where I, I'm not really allowed to say that this is true for you. I can say it's true for me, and you can say, well, if that's true for you, that's good for you, but I'm going to go my own way. And that's become the new morality of modern America. And yet, God's the one who tells us what's right and wrong. God's the one who establishes His commands for us and what obedience to those commands would look like. And so it's into this this terrible time of corruption and a loss of morality that Samuel is born. Samuel's mother is Hannah. Hannah is a woman who couldn't have any children. And she was praying to God on one occasion. And uh, the the priest actually thought she was so passionate and emotional, he thought she was drunk. That, that tells you how much he had lost sight of someone praying earnestly at the altar. He just thought it was somebody who was drunk in the tabernacle. In fact, there was so much corruption at the time that the high priest Eli's two sons were raping women when they came to bring their sacrifice to the Lord at the tabernacle, and they were stealing people's sacrifice to the Lord for themselves. That's what religion looked like in that time period that Samuel was born. Hannah said to the Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of of his life. And he did give her a son, and so when he was weaned, she brought him back to the tabernacle to be raised. And God would call Samuel, and Samuel is unique in all of Israel's history. He's the only man in all of the history of Israel who was a prophet and a priest and a judge. He held all three offices for Israel. And the scripture would say about Samuel, he was a prophet like unto Moses. He was that kind of guy. But Samuel, as he grew old, and as he would come to the late, the latter years of his ministry as judge over Israel, the people would come to him and say, Samuel, you're great. I mean, you're fantastic. Nobody has anything to say bad about you, but we want a king because you're not going to last forever. And when you're gone, your sons aren't like you and nobody else is like you. And so we want a king. Well, Israel's king had always been God. They had never had a man for a king. God was their king. That's why their leader was called a judge. And and so Samuel, his heart was torn about this. And God spoke to him, and he said, They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. And so he would give them a king. Their first king would be a guy named Saul. Uh, To start with, Saul looked like a guy that should be king. He was... He was taller than everybody else, and he was really good-looking, and he was well-built. I mean, he was Hollywood's version of what a king should look like. But pretty soon, he lost any humility that he ever had, and he became kind of full of himself, and he kind of walked around expecting, like a king does, the entitlement that comes with, you've got to treat me like I'm royalty. 
and he really forgot the Lord, and he really disdained Samuel as the prophet of the Lord. Well, on one occasion, God would speak through Samuel to Saul, and he would say, I want you to go, and I want you to fight against the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a people who hated the Israelites. In fact, they'd been trying to destroy the Israelites for 300 years before this passage that we're going to read in 1 Samuel 15. And, uh, and so they're like many of the countries today, Iran, Iraq, the Islamic countries. They want, to, they want to annihilate the Jews, push them into the Mediterranean. They want to take all of that land back. That's who the Amalekites were. And God knew that. God knew that if, uh, if Israel didn't meet them in war and battle, that the Amalekites would destroy the Israelites. And so he sent word to Saul. He said, now when you fight them, he said, he said you have to destroy them all. They're going to come back and they're going to destroy you. And by the way, Saul would not destroy them all. And one of their descendants was a man named Haman, who actually got the uh, king of Persia to issue an edict that all the Jews would be exterminated. And Esther saved them. And that's another book. That's the book of Esther. So that just leads us to this understanding that God knew exactly what he was doing. He's trying to protect his people. And so he sends Saul into battle. That's where I want us to begin reading this morning. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to begin in verse 9. The battle is complete. I'm going to read a little bit longer passage than I usually do because I want you to get a feel of what's about to transpire here between Samuel and Saul. The Scripture says in verse 9. That's where I'm going to begin. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag. He's the king of the Amalekites. He's supposed to kill them all. By the way, he was also supposed to kill all the sheep, all the goats, all the donkeys, all the camels, and all the cattle. He was supposed to just kill them all as an object lesson. And uh, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. They would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless that they devoted to destruction. If, if uh, the animals were lame or wounded or didn't look good or they were skinny, well, they killed those, like God said, but they kept the others. Well, in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and God said, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and from performing my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night long. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel... Uh, that Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. There's a clue there about who Saul really is now. He set up a monument to himself. And he turned, and he passed, and he went down to Gilgal. So Samuel found Saul there, and when Saul saw that Samuel was coming, he comes out of his tent, and he says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says in a very famous response, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? They were all supposed to be dead. Supposed to kill all the sheep, all the oxen, but they're all right there. They're all, they're all grazing. He can hear them. And Saul said in verse 15, they, remember how this went back in verse 13? I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now he says, well, they, oh, yeah, that's what happened. They, the people, uh, they brought... They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Uh, see, why would, they, why would they do that to, uh, oh, I got it. Yeah, to sacrifice the Lord your God. You, you hear him? 
lying on the spot. You hear him trying to come up with a reason for what they've done. In fact, uh, we know that it's a lie um, because in verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, Stop it! Anybody ever just lie? You know they're lying right to your face. And Samuel says, Stop it! He says, Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul, who doesn't even believe that God really speaks to Samuel, says, Oh, sure, tell me. Go ahead, speak. And Samuel says, Though you were once little in your own eyes, and you weren't the head of any of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you as king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? Why did you do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord sent me, and I brought Agag back. Look! Well, if he had done what the Lord told him to do, Agag would be dead. He's got Agag with him. He he spared him, and so he he still doesn't get it. He said, look, I brought Agag, king of the Amalites, and I, and I devoted all the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, you know, Samuel, it's hard to get good help these days. The people, not me, but the people, they took the spoil. I, I mean, I was just one guy. How could I stop them? They, they took the sheep and the oxen and, and, and the best things that should have been devoted to destruction. But, but they, they have good hearts, Samuel. They took it to sacrifice it to God. Here's the famous part of the passage. Samuel says in verse 22, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, he's talking about listening to God, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as uh, the iniquity of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. It's, uh, it's not a fun passage to read. It's, uh, it's someone who's walked away from God, Saul. Someone who is trying to live with a foot in both worlds and trying to say, yeah, I believe in God and I'm following God and I'm obeying God. In reality, they don't really care anything about the things of God. And so I want to walk you through this because I think it's instructional for our lives. Everything that God gives us, everything that he recorded in Scripture, everything inspired by the Holy Spirit of God is given for us so that we can evaluate our own lives. Here are the principles from Samuel that I want you to see this morning. First of all, procrastinated obedience is not true obedience. Uh, the first excuse that Saul offers is, well, yeah, we're, we're going to kill all the sheep, but we're going to do it later in a great big wonderful sacrifice and worship service to the Lord. We're, we're going to do it later, but he's, he's talking about why he procrastinated. And I think there are a whole bunch of us this morning that if we would look in the mirror and be honest, we would say, I believe the Lord, I trust the Lord, I really want to obey the Lord one day, just not yet. And so we procrastinate. Did you you know that 20% of all Americans self-identify as procrastinators? 
And I think that if 20% of, of us will confess it, there's another 20 or 30 or 40% who wouldn't want to confess it. Procrastinators. And a lot of us actually know we're procrastinators, and we know we should do something about it, but we just haven't got around to it yet. You know when we really procrastinate when it comes to the, the sin and the disobedience of our lives? We really do it during the holidays. How many of you know that you, you have a problem in your life and you said, I'm going to get with, I'm going to do that, I'm going to take care of that right after the holidays. I'm going to stop drinking right after the holidays. I'm going to lose some weight right after the holidays. I'm going to start working out right after the holidays. I'm going to take care of this problem, which is hard to do during the holidays. I'm going to do it after the holidays. But have you noticed now in America that the holidays never really end? I mean, used to be the last football game was on New Year's Day, but now college championship goes all the way to about the 11th or the 12th. And it used to be that the Super Bowl was in January, but now it's in February. In a couple of years, it'll be in April. And it's not just, it's not just those things. It's just everything. When you go to Walmart and you go to Target, and especially if you go to Hobby Lobby, does Hobby Lobby have their Christmas stuff out? Does anybody know? You can't get through this holiday before the next stuff is out, right? I mean, Valentine's Day stuff went out like the day after Christmas. And so we never really get around to what we say we're going to do. And a bunch of us have said, you know what, I'm going to start reading my Bible, but I'm going to do it after this. And one day I'm going to really have a prayer time. And one day I'm going to join a life group. I've really thought about joining a life group. And there's a whole bunch of us, we're going to be obedient, but we procrastinate it. And I I want you to know that according to God's word, procrastinated obedience, it's not true obedience. It's not real obedience at all. The second thing we see with Samuel and Saul is partial obedience. Partial obedience is not true obedience either. You see, what Saul did was he went on the mission. They fought the battle. They took all the sheep and the goats that were, that were kind of lame or, or they weren't good. Or they killed all of those because God said kill them all. But those that were good and, I mean, fat and happy and those that could make your, make your ranch better and your farm better, well, they kept it. They only obeyed God in a halfway manner. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're trying to obey God, but you just can't really get there. And so you just think that if you give God kind of a lick and a promise, if you just kind of give him something, there's so many of us who say, Lord, I, I want to obey you. And, and, and isn't it interesting how, how partial obedience and procrastinated obedience often go together? Lord, I, I, I'm going to share my faith. I'm just waiting for the right time with my friend but the right time never comes. Lord, I'm going to tithe. As soon as I get all my credit cards taken care of from the holidays when I spend so much, then I'm going to, then I'm going to tithe. And in the meantime, here's 20 bucks. You know, just tip God. And it's partial obedience. And I, I you know, I, I listen. I heard a, heard a radio preacher when I was driving to work. So, you know, that's the same as having a quiet time with the Lord, isn't it? It's not bad. It's just not total and complete obedience. Samuel says something else uh, because Saul keeps 
coming up with this idea. It seems like the best way to cover what he's done is to say, well, we're going to sacrifice all these animals to the Lord. It's going to be the biggest worship service ever. Samuel, you ought to come. I mean, we haven't, like, we haven't like booked a speaker yet, but everybody loves you. And, uh, I mean, we got a band, and it's, you should come. It's going to be great. We're going to sacrifice all these animals to the Lord. And in verse 22, this is what Samuel says. Verse 22 and 23 are famous verses. You should underline them in your Bible and remember them. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Here's the principle. Making sacrifices for God does not replace true obedience. Um, Saul's the first guy we ever really see it with here in the Bible, but it catches on. I mean, the idea that you can sin, and then maybe you can kind of have your sin wiped away if you make a really big sacrifice, just becomes popular. In fact, in the days of Martin Luther in the 1400s, what the Catholic Church did is they sold indulgences. The idea is give a lot of money to the church and give it to them ahead of time so you could sin later. How good is that? In fact, the idea became the idea of penance. And that's what it was. You can sin, and you could be okay with God. Penance isn't repentance. Penance is if you say enough Hail Marys, you're okay. It's not a biblical principle. To obey is better than sacrifice. And there is no sacrifice that you can make. There's no sacrifice that I can make that can overcome my sinfulness. See, all of this is just the manipulation so that I can convince myself I'm not as really bad a sinner as I really am. And yet Jeremiah the prophet would say, the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's so wicked, who can understand it? It can cover itself and believe that it's really good when it's not. And so I'm here to tell you this morning, based on God's word, it doesn't matter how much you put in the offering plate this morning, that didn't cover your sins. You can volunteer to work in the nursery, that won't cover your sins. You can make great sacrifices and and go on a mission trip, that doesn't cover your sins. Only one sacrifice can pay for your sins. It was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. He became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. That's the only one. There is no sacrifice you can make for yourself to pay for your sins. Samuel says it to Saul way back in the Old Testament. There's another part of this too. So now we've, we've kind of got this, don't we? Let's see if we've got this. Procrastinated obedience is just disobedience. Partial obedience is just disobedience. And now Samuel does something for us in verse 23. He takes the word disobedient and he uses a synonym for it and he uses the word rebellion. Disobedience is rebellion. That's what it is. It's when you know what God wants you to do and you choose not to do it. It's not an information problem. It's a heart problem. And rebellion, Samuel says, he says, rebellion is the same as divination. See the word divination there in your Bible? That's the way it's translated in the ESV. In some Bible translations, it's translated sorcery, or it's all about things that are demon worship. So here's what I would say to you this morning. This is the way I think would be the most effective way to say this to you. Rebellion is the same as Satan worship in the eyes of God. Nobody in this room would ever make a case that Satan worship is okay with God. 
It's not like God says, oh, okay, yeah, there's a lot of ways to God. And you might, say, you might even say, well, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to God. I mean, there's Muhammad and Buddha. But no one would say, Satan is the way to God. No one would say that. Not even an atheist would say that. And so God wants it to be clear to you that when you and I choose disobedience to him, we're rebelling against him. We're turning our back on him. When we turn our back on God, who is it that we're running to embrace? And so here we are, people who claim to know God, people who love God, people who have been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus, and we haven't come to terms yet with our disobedience. We procrastinate it, and we have some partial disobedience, and we don't really believe that it hurts anybody, and so we continue to do it, and yet God calls it disobedience, rebellion, the worship of demons. He he goes one other step. Not only is disobedience, he says, rebellion, the same as Satan worship, but presumption, he says, is the same as idolatry. Now, presumption means this. In our, in our common vernacular as Americans, it means this. Since God forgives sins, and I know he's going to forgive my sins, I can sin this once, and I'll get forgiveness later. I mean, God's a God of love. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He's such a good God, steadfast love. I know he's going to forgive me, so I'll just sin just this once, and then I'll ask forgiveness, and everything will be good. That's presuming on the grace of God. And Samuel says presumption is the same as idolatry. You know, you don't have to have a, a, little, a, li- a little fat guy on your mantle of your uh, fireplace in order to be idolatrous. Idolatry is when you worship anything more than God, higher than God, in the place of God. There's all kinds of ways to be idolatrous. You can, you can be idolatrous with your golf clubs, with your bow and your hunting rifle. You can be idolatrous with your credit card, with a mall. You can be idolatrous with your television can just binge watch Walking Dead five seasons, right? Have you ever binge read your Bible? I doubt it. You see, uh, your passion and your love, here's how you know what you worship. Whatever you spend your time on and your money on and you have a desire for, that's what you love. The question is, is it possible that you love something more than God? And you know what the biggest problem of idolatry is? of all the different idolatrous actions, the thing that we worship more often rather than God is ourselves. We want comfort. We want what we want. We want it now. We throw little two-year-old tantrums when we don't get what we want. We live in a society where I'm the boss of my life, I'm the king of my domain, and I want to be treated as such. And in reality, I've just made myself an idol. And so Samuel says, this kind of presumption that God's just going to forgive me because he's such a great God is like idolatry. And the Bible speaks of idolatry a lot. How does Samuel sum up this whole thing? Well, um, he finally says to Saul, you've lost the kingdom. Since you rejected God, 
since you rejected the commands of God. Since I showed up and you didn't try to repent, you just tried to get excuse and excuse and excuse, and you never really saw your own sin. Since you've rejected God, God's rejected you from being king. Here's the principle. When we reject the word of God and the will of God, we reject the blessing of God. There's so many of us here. here. We come every Sunday, but we don't have the blessing of God in our lives. We talked about the favor of God in the life of, of Joseph. We talked about the favor of God in the life of Moses. We talked about the blessing of God in the life of Joshua. And here we are. And we've, for three weeks, now the fourth week, we would say, we want the blessing of God. I've even asked you, raise your hands. How many of you want the blessing of God? We raise our hands, and yet we keep our little pets in here and our little partial obedience here, and we're procrastinating that, and I think this is okay, and God will forgive me. And we just leave... We just live these mediocre, mundane, trivial Christian lives that never experience the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so this passage, I don't think this passage is for sinners. Of course sinners are disobedient to God. They sin because they're sinners. This passage is for believers. Believers are the ones who are struggling with this. And there's a verse for us as believers. It goes like this. If my people that are called by my name will humble them will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and I will heal the land there's so many of us we hate what our country's become we're praying for a revival in our country but we've been duped into the belief that our country will be changed by who we elect as president or what happens in Washington DC The scriptural formula is, if my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways. The nation's problem can be solved inside the nation's churches. I know not everybody goes to church. Not even a majority go to church. But God's waiting for my people, which are called by my name, to turn from their wicked ways. We've rejected the power of God, the word of God, the blessing of God, the anointing of God. And we just do this mundane, ritualistic, go to church, sing some songs, hear a guy speak, go home, and nothing's ever changed. And... That's presumption. And so the Samuel principles are given to us because God wants your obedience. He doesn't just want you to give it to him out of responsibility. He wants you to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's what he's waiting for. And he's got all this blessing waiting to pour out on you if you'll say yes to him. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of the Gideon International Work and Ministry. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit being here this morning. Thank you for the power of your word, which exposes our disobedience. And Father, thank you for your forgiveness and the change in our lives that have been brought about here this morning. Do this for us, for Jesus' sake, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.